Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and I'm going to start off with saying, my, my, at Waterloo, Napoleon did surrender. Oh, yeah. And I have met my destiny in quite a similar way. The history book on the shelf is always repeating itself. That is the opening line of the absolute smash hit cold classic, Waterloo by ABBA. So that's what we're doing this time round. It allows me to talk about ABBA. It allows me to talk just a tiny bit about the Eurovision Song Contest. Only a tiny bit. Done a whole episode on it. Want to know more? Go back and have a listen to that one. And I've even done another song by ABBA. I've done Money, Money, Money. That was at least three years ago after we changed the format of this particular podcast and so you feel free to listen to that one where money 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 leads us into a conversation about well what actually is money and the history of currency and coinage and notes honestly it's interesting check that one out but this time round it's very rare that you get a battle specifically referenced in a song particularly when that song actually has very little to do with the actual events of that summer of 1815. So it allows me to talk about Waterloo. It allows me to talk about Napoleon Bonaparte, a person who has very rarely been mentioned so far on this podcast. I think this is going to be an interesting one. I hope you enjoy it. Let's go to the wonderful world of ABBA, first of all. Unless you've been living under a rock, you will know that the reason why they're called ABBA is that it's the first letter of each one of the bad members' names. So, unknown as to which way they're round, but you've got Agnetha, who is a woman, you've got Bjorn, who is a man, you've got Benny, who's a man, and you've got Anafrid, who is a woman. And so, there we go, it's the four of them who at various times in various combinations have been married to each other, etc. And so what's really interesting is they formed in 1972 and Sweden just wasn't known for music really and the other weird thing is of all the things they chose they decided to sort of like go to the Eurovision Song Contest in 1973 with Waterloo which you know that's probably not going to win a bunch of votes from the French reminding them of their biggest failure ever but also 
weirdly, there's a bit of history connecting Sweden to the events of Waterloo. Honestly, trust me, I'm going to go with this. But but so it was one of these things where as soon as people started seeing ABBA perform, they realized these guys are good. Doesn't matter what Sweden done previously, these guys have got it. And so when it came out in 1973, we get Waterloo and it absolutely sweeps the board and gives Sweden its first ever win at the Eurovision Song Contest. Now, at the time of recording, we've recently had the 2023 Eurovision Song Contest, which was also won by Sweden. They have now won multiple times. So ABBA started a hot trend that's continuing into the 21st century. And then what was interesting is that at the 50th Eurovision Song Contest, so like 50 years into it, in the early 2000s, Waterloo by ABBA was voted the best Eurovision song of all time. And nobody doubts that. There is no controversy over this. And it just shows you the quality of this. So they started in 72. They didn't really become a big deal until 1973. And it is rare for Eurovision to launch a credible music career. Various people have been one-hit wonders. There's Bucks Fizz, which I love the fact that due to legal reasons, they are now just called Fizz. Really? Somebody out there who owns Bucks Fizz as a name really needs to just let that one lie. But uh, the point is that Fizz, when they first came out in the early 80s with Making Your Mind Up, they did have a number of hits afterwards. But hmm, it just... It... it, it, it they weren't ABBA. Simple as that. And then nobody's be there who's been ABBA. Now, you've had things like Celine Dion sing for a country. You've had Cliff Richard sing for England. Sometimes you import a big star to sing your song. But of course, the problem is Eurovision is its own glorious camp thing. Kind of, in a way, kick-started by ABBA. You know, when people think, oh, I'm going to dress up like ABBA, they tend to think of their incredibly garish, sort of velvet, bell-bottomed, glitter-tastic outfits from Waterloo and the Eurovision Song Contest. But very quickly, those disappeared. That is not what they were wearing in Knowing Me, Knowing You, or indeed kind of their, their last big song in their original version, Winner Takes It All, which is actually a really bittersweet song, and obviously there have been lots of heartbreak in the band, Anyway, as they sing, you can feel the genuine emotion there. So ABBA is one of those great bands that, you know, they're just pop music that almost everybody loves, even sort of like moody goths. If you dig into their collection, you know, when they were a kid, they had ABBA. They are just immaculate pop music. I've heard some people who are in the music world who talk about the incredibly complex overlaying and orchestration of their pop tunes and indeed if you strip them down you know there's piano there's strings there's bass there's vocals there's you know there's a lot going on there are sometimes like multiple melodies sort of like intertwining it's surprisingly complex pop music but the point is it fills a dance floor with something like dancing queen and so abba are just a huge industry of their own they were originally together from 1972 to 1982, 10 years for a pop band, particularly in the 70s and 80s. That was a good run. And then everything went quiet. Then 10 years later, they released ABBA 
Gold, which was a compilation of their greatest hits, basically. <clears throat> and to give you an idea, that has, as time of recording, sold more than 30 million copies worldwide. Indeed, this is one of these things where if you're gonna have an ABBA album, that's the one you get. Even though they've got multiple studio albums, and on some of those studio albums, it does show you that not everything they did was a classic. I'm looking at you, the King Kong song, which is just a terrible song, okay? Not, ABBA can't always produce number one, you know, gold-coated classics. So, yes, we, we all have our mistakes. But then what's really interesting is just ABBA refused to go away. There was so much love around it that it kept being repackaged and recycled. And they had so many hits that, you know, you could listen to lots of different elements of ABBA and kind of not get bored. It wasn't like they were one-hit wonders with Waterloo. So a, a further evolution in 1999 you get Katherine Johnson creating Mamma Mia, the stage musical jukeboxy thing. It's like there are loads of these, like We Will Rock You About Queen and the endless ones, Jersey Boys, etc. So, you know, if you've had some good hits, then why not? And for various random reasons, Catherine, you know, look, I have huge respect for her. She packaged something together with obviously a huge amount of heart, which has made her millions and and has given joy to so many people. And But for some unknown reason, it's wrapped around a trip to Greece. I've never quite understood why that is, uh, seeing they're coming from Sweden. None of their songs are sort of like all about Greece. Hey, why not? And indeed, loads of people go on holiday to Greece. And so, yeah, have at it. <laughs> so Mamma Mia came out to just really good reviews. I mean, it's not Shakespeare, but, you know, everybody recognised it's a really good time and you can't get better than ABBA songs, really. So off we go in 1999. Then in 2008, whatever's been a big hit on the theatre, let's turn it into a movie. And they got Meryl Streep in that one. And I, for the full record, I love ABBA. Like I say, I have a huge amount of respect to the creation of Mamma Mia!, I love a good musical. Done a whole episode on musicals. You can listen to that one if you go back. And Mamma Mia's hardly mentioned because I hate it. I remember sitting there in the cinema watching Mamma Mia in 2008 and just thinking, this is embarrassingly amateurish. I'm sorry. But when you've got people standing there in the strong wind and there's no wind on the sound whatsoever, I shouldn't sit there and literally see their lips moving from the sound booth, okay? And also two, two songs finish where everybody jumps into the water together. It's like, could you not have come up with any other choreography? I found it staggeringly mediocre. The songs were great. People were clearly having a wonderful time making this thing. It in no way swept me along. But it cost about $50 million to make and it grossed over $600 million. So yeah. I'm wrong, okay? Once again, huge cash cow there for everybody involved. Uh, and it led to an inevitable sequel. Of course it did. Ten years later, we get Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again in 2018. That was a little bit more expensive, about $75 million. And it grossed not quite as much, a bit over $400 million. But that's still a very healthy return. Who knows what happens in the year... 2028 do we get a third one the trilogy the lord of the mamma mias or something like that. i have no idea 
It terrifies me, quite frankly. But here's the weird thing. Between the two films, ABBA reformed in 2016. Name me another band where 34 years later, I mean, well over 40 years after they originally formed, they reformed. And they create an album called Voyage, which was their first ever Grammy-nominated album. This comes out in 2021. They reformed in 2016. And that album, that new album of new, completely new material, this is the band getting back together, writing and creating. And it's that has sold more than two and a half million copies. And it's got excellent reviews. Basically, if you like their old stuff, you're going to like the Voyage stuff. And the weird thing is, I've got a really good friend of mine who loves his music. He's got quite an eclectic taste, but he's a very smart man. Um, sometimes he can be quite serious as well. Big ABBA fan. And they created a live hologram version of the album of Voyage. And he was describing it to me. It's like, what's it like? Because you know it's basically all pre-recorded. And you've literally got them, but they've also kind of been de-aged. And they're sort of like dancing around. You've got a live band there. So you've got a kind of a live atmosphere. It's not like just press play for the experience. And he said, oh, I absolutely loved it. And they absolutely say, it's a bit weird. We're being recorded and you're going to be seeing this. And, you know, we'd love you to enjoy it. It's like, okay, fine. They're pushing the boundaries of technology there. Go for it, ABBA. Why not? Your people now in your 70s redefining the musical genre just all the love to you guys. Well done, everybody. Well done. That, I think, is a good summary of where we are with ABBA. I think you can tell I've got a lot of love with them. Just also feel obliged to say another sort of element of my family creeping in here as well. So Mamma Mia, as I said, started off in 99 as just a theatrical event. Then it was a film in 2008, sequel 2018. But somewhere in there, I, I didn't bother looking it up, to be honest, there's the Mamma Mia dining experience, which is basically the entire play, much reduced in terms of choreography, while you're having a meal. And my wife went with a bunch of her middle-aged female friends, and they had just the best time. And then at the end, they basically clear away all the tables, turn it into a dance floor, and you can boogie to ABBA. Now that sounds a lot more fun, quite frankly, than the movie. Although I didn't bother to check with her what the quality of the food was like, but... Look at all the different ways you can consume a Swedish band from over 50 years ago that won Eurovision once. Now, obviously, that doesn't give them anything like the credit they deserve, but it's just... Name me somebody else from Eurovision who was born of Eurovision, if you like, who's had that kind of career, that kind of musical influence, that kind of love, that amount of movies. Indeed, at the height of their fame, the first time round, there was ABBA the movie, which one of my other friends, who's a completely, again, sort of like normal, down-to-earth, like not particularly flamboyant guy, he just loves that movie. The basic gag of it is there's a journalist who's trying to keep finding ABBA, and he sort of just keeps missing them and just keeps missing them. And so you get lots of their stage performances and things like that. It's not like a, a Beatles movie where they're pretending to be different people and stuff like that. But the bit at the end of the film is just when he's given up all hope. He walks up to the lift elevator to leave. The lift opens and there's all of ABBA and his face lights up. And then he can ask them all the questions he's been meaning to ask them for his article. So he has a happy ending there too. So they are a multimedia conglomeration. Well done, ABBA. You can't tell, but I am saluting you right now. <laughs> so... 
After that wild diversion, let's go back to Waterloo. And to remind you of the actual words, I'm hoping Greg now puts in the opening few lines. Yes, Waterloo's quite prevalent in this situation. And what I kind of wanted to say is that Napoleon obviously is an incredibly important person in the world of European history in the 19th century, in terms of imperialism and military history. So, you know, he, he props up all the time. And when people start talking about world's greatest generals, he's usually up there on the list. But I think he's quite an interesting character to sort of delve a little further into because he's almost like what you want to pull out of Napoleon is kind of a reflection of what you're interested in, your biases, whatever they may be. And therefore, they, he, and he's one of these people, unlike Alexander the Great, who I would argue is better than Napoleon on the grounds that he was undefeated in his entire campaigning lifetime, and also he won his war, whereas Napoleon, fundamentally, he won far more battles than he lost, but he did lose some big ones, and critically, if you're going to be a general, you need to win the war, and Napoleon failed to do so. Indeed, on the political, the, the realities of dealing with the nations of Europe, he was terrible, because... You know, there's been arguments about Brexit and things like that in, in, in Britain, obviously, and there's been sort of various complaints about the EU, and, you know, those are kind of justifiable. But Napoleon managed to bring the whole of Europe together against him, which is no means feat. Trying to get Austria, Russia, Germany, Spain, and Britain to agree on almost anything is impossible, apart from we're fed up with Napoleon, let's get rid of him. There we go. So that, that's just sort of a, a brief overview. I'm also going to put in at this point, guys, if you like this podcast, click subscribe. Please give us a review. Thank you very much. Tell somebody else about this. I'm at Jem Daducci on Twitter. What do you think of this episode? Got any other ideas? Love to hear from you. If you are on Twitter, twice a week, I sort of like tweet out, here's what this particular episode's going to be about. So you get to see what it is sort of hot off the press from the guy who wrote it, edited by Greg, who is a dream. Oh my god, he's a dream! As his sound effect always says and points out. Anyway, yes, so you can always reach out to me on Twitter. That's what I'm going to say there. But now back to the kind of history stuff, okay? Where to start with Napoleon? First of all, it is worth reminding everybody that he wasn't technically French, although the French would definitely dispute that. But he comes from Corsica. That's part of France, Gem. Yeah, but... Napoleon Buonaparte is Italian as a surname. Beautiful port, by the way, is what it's, his surname literally means. His first language was Italian. There has always been a kind of independence movement on Corsica to get it away from France. He certainly wouldn't have been brought up by a bunch of Paris-loving aristocrats or something like that. He came from 
very low aristocratic background. He went to the École Militaire, the military academy, which was very high status. And he ended up having to do it all in one year because his father died of stomach cancer. So actually, he passed just. He was one of the bottom people in the class. But then again, he only did it in half the time. That isn't a sign that he was about to become the greatest general of the 19th century, but he did okay there. Again, for sort of like British people, it's all like, oh, look, he's so underwhelming, etc. For French people, look at all the adversity and how he had to sort of like struggle, etc. It is worth pointing out that he was teased by his colleagues for his thick-accented or heavily-accented French. We, we tend to think of him as the epitome of French. He ain't French. So, yeah. There we go. That that was the realities of him early on. And it is, of course, worth pointing out that he was going up through the ranks of the Bourbon French aristocratic military circles. This is all happening just before you get the French Revolution. And so when the French Revolution broke out, he was basically a lieutenant in a sleepy little town. And it was looking like he was going to be completely missed out for the whole of history. Now, I, do you know what? The reality is this. I want to give you a feeling about Napoleon. I want to spend most of my time at the other end of his career because I'm very intrigued. Ridley Scott is... I, I learned about this a couple of years ago. Ridley Scott seems to love making movies about history, and some of them can be extremely successful and exciting. Gladiator, not particularly historically accurate, but wow, Gladiator. And some of them are really, really good. Kingdom of Heaven, the director's cut, is really, really good. Some of them aren't. I'm looking at you, Robin Hood, which, again, had Russell Crowe in it. But you also had The Last Jewel, which... Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. 
Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I can see what he was going for there. It's not a bad film. It's actually been was very well put together. But it's Rashomon with a sort of medieval European coat on it. Now, that's a pretty high praise indeed. So at the time of recording, I haven't seen it. But I'm suspicious because Joaquin Phoenix is basically nearly as old as Napoleon was when he died. And apparently this is going to be showing Napoleon throughout his career, which, yeah, I mean, that's one of the problems of all this. Also, Joaquin Phoenix doesn't look remotely like Napoleon. So he's a great actor. And, you know, I, I love him in lots of different films, but I don't know what's coming next. The other thing is, interestingly, is whereas Napoleon is such a big deal in history, he's not been box office dynamite. There is a movie from 1970 called Waterloo, and I really like it. And it is very impressive. They actually filmed it in the Soviet Union, which allowed them to get thousands of really cheap troops to basically, you know, members of the Red Army to literally dress up as Prussians or French or British soldiers and just, you know, just give them a different outfit and get them to stand there. But it cost a fortune. It was apparently incredibly long. It's been cut down to whatever length it is nowadays. And whereas the battle scenes are really good, the rest of it's a bit rushed. It's fairly historically accurate, actually, and certainly gets across the point of what a cavalry charge is like against the squares of soldiers. It's it's really well put together, but it's not really talked about in the 21st century, apart from military historians. And it's certainly not something that people are slapping on on a Saturday afternoon, which is what how I felt came across it when I was a kid. So, yeah, generally, movies which involve long rows of musket men in bright jackets don't tend to be box office business. It's not very cinematically pleasing, and... What I find interesting is most of the 19th century is seen through the lenses of things like the the Bronte sisters or, you know, Wuthering Heights or Middlemarch. It's actually a surprising amount of women, particularly in Britain, that are actually writing about it. And it's more about the domestic scene rather than the horrors of the battlefield. So let's see what happens with that Napoleon movie. Watch this space. There will be an episode on it. Either me going, oh, my God, I was... All my anxieties were washed away. It's just a masterpiece. I really hope I say that. Really hope I say that. Or I might be going, oh, it's a flawed masterpiece. Or, ugh, yeah, problems there. I so hope it's the first one. Ridley Scott is just a... He's never made an ugly-looking movie. He always makes interesting movies. I'm not sure he's ever made an outright bad movie. But some of them are historically better than others. And, yeah, I'm looking at you. 1492, all about Christopher Columbus which he did with Gerard Depardieu. So anyway, what I'm going to do is instead look at how all this maelstrom of warfare, which swept across all of Europe, it is worth pointing out that Napoleon ended up fighting on multiple continents. He's best known for fighting in Europe and on into Russia, but one of his earliest victories and most sensational victories was the Battle of the Pyramids, where he literally beat a bunch of Mamluks. The, the British aren't even involved in this story. This is against, in essence, a semi-independent or uh, part of the Ottoman Empire. 
So that's Africa, technically. I mean, Egypt is actually part of Africa, although culturally it's more in the Middle East. Then Napoleon kept going into the Middle East, up along the coastal edge, so he could get resupplied, and basically ended up fighting a bit like the Crusades did, although he wasn't fighting for God or anything like that. But it's just, it's just fascinating to me. So he's, he, this is a man who fought in the Middle East. This is a man who fought in, in North Africa. This is a man who fought across the winter wastes of Russia. He certainly fought a variety of different enemies in a variety of different terrains, and more often than not, he won. So you've got to absolutely give him that. But one of the places that ended up being conquered as part of this is something called the Pomeranian War, which goes from 1805 to 1809. And this, in essence, Napoleon wasn't heavily involved in this. This was an example of he had really good generals and he trusted his generals to kind of get on with it. And so the Pomeranian War, it ends up being a French victory. And so they take over Pomerania, uh, or importantly, Sweden. Sweden's the bit that's the link here. Oh, hang on. Abba? Abba's Swedish too? I see where Jem's going with this. And so after 1809, Sweden is basically forced to, is, is a puppet state of the French Empire. Now, this was happening all over Europe. There were various different sort of like coalitions to fight against Napoleon. And every time he absolutely crushed one country, they would fall out of that coalition so that there would be another reforming so the uh, in one of them austria can't fight because we've had to surrender and then in the next one prussia can't fight because they've had to surrender but austria's back in the game and on the outskirts we've got britain kind of funding everybody they were the bank of the napoleonic wars and obviously in the sea napoleon managed to fail every time now he never led a fleet but the interesting thing about the french in the napoleonic wars is on land, you got Napoleon, and he's really hard to beat. But if you're trying to run an empire like France's, you need networks through waterways. And in that situation, France always lost to the British. So, yay, Nelson and the Royal Navy, etc. So from 1809, after Sweden is forced into this, till 1812, there's something called the Phantom War. So Napoleon wanted to basically blockade, because he wasn't doing very well in the seas, he wanted to blockade Britain from all of the markets in Europe, which Britain made a lot of money from. So he called it the continental system. Problem was, Britain was better at producing everything than anywhere in Europe. Britain was now at the start of the Industrial Revolution, unlike any other country on planet Earth. So they could produce it faster, cheaper, and in larger quantities. And so... The continental system was a clever idea by Napoleon, but he never had enough manpower or will for people to not smuggle stuff in from Britain and smuggle stuff out to Britain because people need to earn a living. The continental system was a nice idea on paper, but would never work in the real world. Jem's talking about one of the greatest military leaders, and he's now talking about economic blockades. I'll move on. But the point is, from 1809 to 1812 in Sweden, they were meant to be doing this too, but they really didn't want to because, hey, they'd just lost a war to France. They didn't like the French. And so this period of Swedish history is called the Phantom War. We're on paper. Oh, you naughty British. Oh, we'll show you. And in reality, it's like, we don't care. If anything, we're kind of on your side. But what I find utterly fascinating is that after the Napoleonic Wars, we then get this period with Sweden 
where there's a change of regime. And basically at that point, Sweden for centuries had had one of the most powerful armies in Northern Europe. It had done remarkably well during things like the Thirty Years' War about a century and a half earlier. But basically it was a fading military power, but they took the really brave move in the early 19th century to turn around and say, we're going to be neutral from now on. And you know what? They have been, kind of. For the last 200 years, Sweden has not got involved in any wars in the world. During both world wars, for better or for worse, they were neutral. And that's why people could escape to Sweden and kind of be safe, even though Norway had been invaded by the Germans. Same with Denmark as well. It's the one Scandinavian country that wasn't captured, connected to continental Europe. So Sweden just stayed out of everything, stayed out of trouble, made Volvos. That's what they did. Until you get to 2022. Almost exactly 200 years after they were originally neutral and basically because of the war in Ukraine and the activities, the aggressive activities of Russia, it led these two countries, Finland and Sweden, these two neighbours who had been largely neutral for large periods of history for the previous two centuries, Finland particularly after losing the Winter War narrowly and sort of like fighting briefly for a couple of years with the Axis powers in World War II, basically decided at the end of World War II that they would be neutral moving forwards. And now... Finland has already joined NATO and Sweden's in the process of joining NATO. And so once again, there's a reason why Putin, who wanted to show the West how powerful he was, has lost further gains in terms of strategy. Because particularly with Finland, which has a direct land border with Russia, they've now got over 800 miles now of enemy border that they're going to have to have centuries on, which further stretches the limits of what Russia is capable of doing. Not that Finland's planning on invading Russia anytime soon, but yeah, Russia, a bit like Napoleon, if you're just going to do whatever you want and be aggressive to everybody else, don't be surprised if everybody else gangs up on you. This is one of the reasons why people study history, because it's an imperfect mirror, but it can give you a reflection of what's likely to happen next. And certainly, this is what's happened in this situation, although Putin by no means is anything close to Napoleon in his abilities of being able to capture things and fight on the battlefield. And indeed, Napoleon was on the battlefield on many occasions. So with that in mind, Waterloo, it's the one everybody's heard of. But what I find interesting is it's not the definitive anything. It was a big battle. Between 70,000 and 75,000 on each side were fighting. On the one side, you basically got British and Allied forces, including some Dutch people there as well. With later on in the day, you've got the Prussians coming in. That was absolutely critical to win the battle. And then on the other side, you've got the French, in essence. So, no, that's not even close. To give you an idea, you've got... The Battle of Nations, also known as the Battle of Leipzig in 1813. This was a four-day battle where basically Napoleon was in Leipzig and it was like a clock face. He was surrounded by different armies from different nations, which hence why it's called Battle of the Nations sometimes. And it's almost like a clock face. It's like over at nine o'clock, that's where the Prussians are. And then over at three o'clock, that's where the Austrians are. So, you know, there were different forces there. And to give you an idea, the French had 225,000. So that's nearly a quarter of a million men in that battle. And then the Allies 
had 338,000 combined. Now, they weren't ever sort of like standing there all in one big lump. They were spread out as a perimeter around Leipzig. But that's an epic battle, which actually is pretty unknown in Britain because we didn't have any forces there. So we don't care. We weren't fighting against Napoleon at that point, which is a little bit myopic of ourselves. So that's the Battle of Nations of Battle of Leipzig in 1813. Then it is worth pointing out that the Battle of Waterloo was not the only battle that actually happened. In essence, what happened was you've got Napoleon, he gets defeated, and then he gets sent into exile onto Elba, and then he comes back for the Hundred Days, as it's called. He basically, in 1815, he then just upsticks, gets on a boat, comes back to France, and then rallies all his troops, and everybody goes, yeah, let's give this one last throw of the dice. He then marches into modern-day Belgium, and then basically fights the battles of Catrebras and Ligny. This is before Waterloo. And then what's interesting is, obviously, you can't be in two places at the same time, but the Battle of Ligny wasn't fought by Napoleon. But what's interesting is that Ligny was on the 16th of June, and everybody assumed that there would be, you know, at, at the time, Wellington is desperately trying to get his troops there in time. And what's interesting is everybody's kind of ready to go on the 17th, but then you get incredibly heavy rain. And this is the 19th century. You've got cannons and muskets, and this is all pretty useless in the rain. So everybody decides nothing's going to happen. And so the Battle of Waterloo happens on the 18th of June, rather than the 17th of June, when it should have happened, uh, delayed due to rain. How British is that? And actually, it doesn't start first thing in the morning, because Napoleon notices that the water still hasn't drained from the battlefield. So he waits until about noon to get going to basically allow the ground to harden up a little bit. The other thing, though, of course, is that while this was going on, it wasn't the only battle happening on that day. There was also the Battle of Wavre, which the French were fighting simultaneously with Waterloo. And basically, Napoleon's instructions to his generals was like, head towards the guns. So in other words, if you hear a sound of battle, go towards the sound of battle. You never know where I might need you. But as it was, the Battle of Wavre was much smaller, but... It was a French victory, and they also managed to defeat the Prussians, which, had they both been at the Battle of Waterloo, probably wouldn't have made a huge difference because they were similar numbered amount of troops. But what's interesting, it shows you that, you know, Catrebras and Ligny were not defeats for France. You can argue whether or not they were sort of like, they certainly weren't crushing victories. They might have been sort of like tactical victories or something like that, get into a better position, etc. Basically, both armies kind of mauled at each other. But Ligny was definitely a victory, and Ligny technically sort of finished about the same time as Waterloo. So why is Waterloo remembered, and what I've been just been telling you about Ligny is sort of like forgotten? Because it was a sideshow to the main event. But the thing is, so you go, right, okay, it wasn't the biggest one, Gem, but it was definitely the last, wasn't it? No, because there was the Battle of Issy as the Prussians headed towards Paris, and there was a fighting rearguard action there because... No Frenchman's going to just allow the Germans to just march into Paris. You know, that's just against all good taste. So there was a battle, but again, it was a fair, relatively small affair. The French ultimately lost. They had, you know, they were exhausted from 25 years of warfare. And by now, Napoleon has actually surrendered. What's interesting, though, is this is also a classic example of be careful about your sources, because after Waterloo, Napoleon is once again put into exile, but Elba was too close to Europe, so instead he's put on St. Helena, which is this tiny little island just off the coast of Africa, which constantly had one, at least one royal naval vessel circling it, and there, Napoleon basically lived for about six years. He was under house arrest, in essence, he had his own house, and 
own servants and things like that. He was well looked after. He wasn't put in like a cell with like uh, chains, although he absolutely hated the man who was his job was to kind of be his warden. Well, not so much prison warden, but the man look after him. They basically sort of like playing mind games with each other. At one point, Napoleon even thought that he was poisoning his food or poisoning his wallpaper somehow. But sadly, six years later, Napoleon dies of stomach cancer, the same fate that had befallen his father. But in that time, Napoleon had a chance to sit down and write his side of the story. And while he's got lots of interesting points of view, and of course we know what he's thinking because he's telling us, great, he is of course writing this in retrospect, and he is also trying to put himself in the best light. And so there is this theory by a very small amount of historians in France that France won the Battle of Waterloo. Now bear with me on this because it takes a slight of hand to this one. The Battle of Waterloo went on into the dark, and what's critical about it is as Napoleon kept battering away, and for a time he was ill, and General Ney was sort of sending out troops as well to, to batter the, the British who were largely fighting for most of the day on their own, what Wellington cleverly did is he hid most of his forces on the reverse slope of a hill. So in other words, you could blast away at the top of the hill and you might hit a few guys, but almost everybody's behind the hill, which you can't hit with cannons or get with cavalry, and therefore they were largely protected. So basically Wellington was grinding down the French until eventually you get the old guard marching in and they get ambushed and it's the only time in the whole of Napoleonic history that the old guard, these sort of like key veterans who fought with Napoleon throughout his entire career actually retreat, actually run away from battle. You know, it's the only time they actually did that. And for the record, they dropped their fur-skin hats, and that's why you get the Grenadier Guards and the Coldstream Guards having these big busbies, these big bearskins. They didn't wear them up until the Battle of Waterloo. That's basically modern-day soldiers wearing dress uniform to remind them of their victory over the Old Guard, the most feared soldiers in the whole of Europe. It's kind of like a badge of honour and the badge of killing Frenchmen, as uh, Blackadder would have put it. So the other thing about this is uh, towards the end... so. At the end, there's this sort of central farmhouse that's, that, that changes hands multiple times, but towards the end of the day, the French recapture it. And so the French recapture it. The British have had to sort of like move to the hill, the hillside. The French are moving forwards. At that point, if you then hit pause, Napoleon's winning the Battle of Waterloo. And so if you hit pause then, Napoleon has won the Battle of Waterloo, and that's basically his argument. But then we have Battle of Waterloo 2. This time it's personal. As then the old guard march further in, they end up being forced to retreat under withering fire. Then we get Blucher, the leader of the Prussians. He was nicknamed General Vorwards because he would his basic order was always forwards. I love the fact he was a very old man by now. Uh, he only lived a few years himself after the Battle of Waterloo. And towards the end, he was quite delirious. And he was convinced that he was pregnant with a baby elephant. You can't make this stuff up. That's why I love history. And so, yes, that's what's happening with the Battle of Waterloo. And at that point, once the Prussians arrive, there's just, there's just too much momentum and too many men. And the French have been exhausted from all their fighting and they basically collapse and leave. For the point of view, if Napoleon thinks that he left in good order and everything was fine, A, why did he leave? And B, why did he leave in such an obscene hurry that his personal coach with his cloak in was taken by the British at the end of the day? Clearly, Napoleon had lost. And if you like, yes, Issy happened later. Yes, Wavre was a victory. But the point is, this is the point where clearly, even if Napoleon had won the Battle of Waterloo, the whole of Europe was just going to pour more and more resource until this man was over. 
he had run out of options. He had managed to annoy the whole of Europe. And interestingly, and a lot of military historians say this, and I do agree with them, that when you get big battles with Napoleon, things like Borodino in Russia or the, the Battle of the Nations, the larger the army, the less agile he is, the, the less exciting a general he is. It's basically two sledgehammers bludgeoning each other. And Waterloo was a bit like that as well. It could also be a case that by now, after 25 years, everybody knew his tricks. But really, when you look at in 1805, yes, there was the big defeat at Trafalgar for the Navy, but you get the Battle of the Three Emperors or the Battle of Austerlitz, which is one of his greatest victories. And he even said the day before, it'll all come down to that hill there. And that's indeed where the pivot of the battle actually took place. So it's interesting. He seems to be better with smaller troops. He's, e he's even better if he's slightly outnumbered, but he's got a chance to maneuver. But when he's sort of got everything he needs, and so does the other guy, kind of loses his imagination. So there we go. That's the Battle of Waterloo. That's the how Sweden gets mixed into the whole story here. And that's the story of ABBA as well. Hope you enjoyed it. Another episode coming soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.